What is going on, guys, and welcome to the Maker Made Podcast, the pod about woodworking, content creation, running a business, and whatever else we come up with. Hosted by myself, Tyler of Westfall Woodco, and my best friend Brian from Dogwood Custom Builds. You can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. Yo, 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 what's up, my brothers? I say brothers because we got another brother from another mother. We got Zach Hess up in the house from Double K Products. So I'm going to welcome Zach to the show. Um, Pretty excited to have you on. Some cool topics, great questions in the queue. Um, But yeah, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for our uh, 1 million weekly listeners? (laughs) Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, Pretty excited to talk about epoxy with you boys. I know a lot of people have questions about it. Um, So... Name is Zach Hess. I live in New York State. I grew up in New York, moved to Idaho for a couple years to go get a graduate degree out there. Uh, Worked for the state for a bit. Moved back to New York. Uh, Worked for the government here, local government. I work for the the county um, and pursued woodworking a little bit in my free time. I started with doing the good old rustic farmhouse stuff like most people. I did some raised flower boxes and eventually got into hardwoods and hardwoods and epoxy and now i do a lot more epoxy than anything else the rest is history huh yeah because i've only ever seen you post stuff about epoxy as of the last like i don't know i've been following you for what like six months at least now you do some pretty intricate work though even with like some of the boxes that you've made recently and uh like trays and stuff like that yeah i i uh I originally, it's weird because I originally started thinking I was going to do end grain boards. I've seen a lot of the end grain boards, like the chaos stuff, and that really intrigued me, but moved into epoxy. Epoxy can be fun. That's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, definitely a lot of uh, epoxy talk coming on, but uh, yeah, once again, Zach, we appreciate you having on. Excited to have you here, but let's uh, let's talk about what we're working on. Doggy, I know you said you don't have a ton going on, but I'd love to hear, there's got to be something. Hmm. I did some end grain boards as uh, Zach brought it up. So I got three end grain boards, but everything, I bought some like heavy construction paper at Home Depot and I'm just wrapping up all my inventory, uh, boxing that real nice so it doesn't get damaged in the move. And then I'm boxing more stuff. It's pretty boring, honestly. I don't really have any fun projects in the queue other than as we speak about epoxy, the my first uh, epoxy. <laughs> Epoxy board with what are these called? What is this called? Golf tees. I mean, they're golf tees, but what do you call that? Where you like lamb? It's casted. Casted. There you go. Uh, See. Um, Look at that. Learning something new already from Zach having him on. (laughs) Look at that. Everyone, write that down. We're gonna quiz you on it next week. (laughs) Uh, That's That's sick. Pretty quiet. That board turned out really cool, dude. Yeah, wasn't ideal because I didn't listen to Zach actually, so uh, it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. What, What did you not listen about? Uh, he said not not to use two different brands of epoxy, and I used two different brands of epoxy. <laughs> <laughs> and then really good, really good idea to he not told listen. Told me to the when to put the T's in, and I didn't listen. And I put them in too early, and it started floating. That's why I had to plane through the T's because they floated to the top. That sucks. Um, yeah, but things we'll talk about later. Yo, also Zach, this is a we've gotten more questions on this podcast than I think any of the other episodes combined. The epoxy. Yeah. Oh boy. So it, it might end up being a, a long episode. <laughs> yeah. As long as, yeah. I mean it, yeah, it's pretty impressive one. People don't know anything about it. Yeah. It's really one of those topics and it's, it's such a controversial topic in woodworking too. You know, some people are so pro, so against. And so I'm sure you got an array of questions about, you know, 
why do it but then the people that don't know how to do it but are intrigued by how do you do it because so many people want to get into it but it's so expensive or difficult yeah totally i mean it really is fun to work with and not a lot of people know uh how to use it or or really what it is um but we'll get to that uh ty what are you what are you working on in the shop oh um i finished up those uh 10 cocktail tables for that event company that felt really good actually the owner of the company who's my buddy came over just before we started recording and we were chatting about some really excited stuff really exciting stuff we have coming up with with them so that's pretty cool uh they were very pleased with the table, so we're going to get, keep the ball rolling with some of those. Um, I made a delivery yesterday for a small end table that I was making for a client. And then today and tomorrow, I'm going to be making this uh, three or uh, V-carved sign on a CNC for a wedding, as well as an eight-foot-tall uh, wooden cross made out of alder. Hmm. That'll be pretty interesting. I'm excited to see how that one turns out. Was That's that the test carve you were showing the other day that you sent, you sent some things in the poll about? Or yeah. some things in your story. Yeah, I had a for some reason I was getting I was having a lot of difficulty with I haven't done a lot of V carving with the CNC. I do a lot of cutting, not carving. So that's been a little bit of a hurdle to get over. I've done a couple and they turned out perfectly fine, but this was a much bigger one. This thing is thirty six by twenty four, whereas I've only carved like a two by four or a two inch by four inch spot. So some trial and error was uh was needed, but we got through it. So it's all that matters, I guess. Zach, Zach, what about you, big dog? What you got going on? Oh man, a mountain of stuff. I I said yes to too many people. Uh, <laughs> which <laughs> story I'm, of my I'm, life? I'm sure could be a topic for one of you for your one of your episodes one of these times. Is you know when, when to say yes, when to say no, and I've got a bad habit of saying yes. And so I, luckily, I only accept deposits for like a certain monetary threshold. Um, and so a lot of these are kind of when I get them done, I get them done, but. It's, you know, ranging from clocks and coasters to pretty big tables right now. I feel like you always have 50 projects. You'll, you'll post a story and I'm like, where is this? How many how many rooms is this in, in this guy's house does he have like dedicated to storage yeah. of inventory and, and projects? It's pretty I mean, it's impressive. I if I have more than two projects at a time, I just get overwhelmed and I just <laughs> I, I just don't like it. But yeah. it's impressive it's, that you can track all of that and like push them forward. It's definitely overwhelming. Uh, it, it, but from a good and bad perspective, it's it's good because it, it keeps you moving forward with projects and learning more and holds you accountable. But bad from a perspective of you don't really know how to divvy the the workload at times. Like because I don't accept the deposit, it's kind of free flowing. Sometimes I'm like, uh, what do I finish? Like I get a cool idea and I want to pursue that. And then I do that instead of something that's actually paying me money. Wait, you, you don't you don't do deposits at all? Uh really, really infrequently. I usually don't accept or don't require deposits unless it's like two thousand plus. For for like hmm. a two hundred dollar serving tray, I usually have the perspective that if I make it it'll sell. And if I've got to sit on it for two months, three months, whatever, it's it's not too detrimental to me. So yeah, I, I very infrequently require a deposit or if it's a customization piece. So anything CNC, Ty, as you know, it, it, once you put that that bit to it, it's it's basically theirs. There's no one else that wants that mm-hmm. piece. Right, for sure. Mm-hmm. That's, very, that's very interesting to hear your outlook. I guess I've actually never, in all of our time of talking, I've never asked you about that specific topic. So it's very interesting to learn about that. And it's funny... <laughs> It's funny you mentioned that, like, if you make it, you'll sell it. 
and that goes into doggy story. <laughs> if you make uh, it, they will not buy it. <laughs> doggy, doggy, that that actually brings me to like a serious point, though. Like, I very much so admire. Obviously, you're in a different situation than most of us. I mean, you and Zach are kind of in the same boat. But uh, me, for example, I don't have the time and the the I guess materials to make things for fun. But I, I think I've said this in a past episode that I'm very jealous of you, both of you guys, actually, for being able to make stuff just for funsies and seeing how it turns out. I wish I could do more of that genuinely. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a blessing and a curse because it's basically made <laughs> me a bad, not a bad business person, but I don't really care if I sell it or not. It's just kind of right. to add to the portfolio. So it, it's, I don't know, it's fun, but it's also like doesn't bring money in. So it should be considered <laughs> as a waste of time. You're telling me having three coffee tables in your living room is a bad thing? <laughs> I had five coffee tables at one point. I have one family room. Um, but no, and that so that is something that's coming up this next week for me is uh, I have to go to the consignment shop and start picking everything up. I kind of dropped the the bomb on them and said, hey, I need to pick up my $10,000 of inventory and bring it with me. So um, we'll see how that relationship deteriorates and how on the topic of since we're keeping this kind of epoxy related did you ever sell that epoxy table that you had with them this consignment mm-hmm. shop no i went Damn. there one day or three weeks ago and i had to hunt around the shop to find it like it was hidden in like a corner oh so, i remember you saying yeah, that that's so mad about that. but my dad wants it for uh his accounting office in ohio so he's gonna i'm gonna move it to memphis and my dad's gonna drive down and pick it up so um nice. not the end of the world He's not getting the family and friends discount. Cost materials <laughs> times three plus twenty percent. Dad, I know you're listening. Fellas, before we dive deeper into all these questions that we got, by the way, thanks so much everyone for submitting questions for uh, our guest on the topic of epoxy and whatever else you guys came up with. But uh, I do want to take a quick second to mention our sponsor of today's episode, which is Grabo Tools. Thanks so much, Grabo, for sponsoring today's episode. You're probably asking yourself, what is a Grabo? Well, I'll tell you. It's a portable electric vacuum lifter capable of lifting up to 375 pounds of dry, rough, and porous materials. Designed with professionals in mind, its ergonomics provide better grip and less fatigue when moving heavy objects. Works perfectly with glass, wood, ceramic tiles, metals, and many other materials. My favorite use is to tote around unruly sheet goods. If you haven't checked out Grabo yet, get on it. Thanks, Grabo, for sponsoring today's episode. Thanks again, Grabo. You guys are the best. I used my Grabo today to help my friend move, and I seriously love the product. So thank you again for sponsoring uh, episode 14. Now let's jump into the true bread and butter and the main reason we brought on big dog Zach Hess into the uh, building, so to speak. Um, All our questions pretty much tailored towards epoxy, and let's kick it off with uh, what is epoxy? Because I generally don't know. If you asked me what epoxy was, I would tell you it's liquid plastic that eventually hardens into real plastic. And and with yeah. the what is epoxy, Zach, I don't know if you want to give a little lowdown on the different types, like one to one for tabletop and two to one, three to one, all that stuff. Um, yep. Because I think you you understand the science behind it more than most people. I just kind of hope it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess. Because I've I've like had conversations with people about this because you know you you hear resin and epoxy used synonymously a lot and so I I did delve a little bit more into the chemistry of of it and so I I might not do it 
justification with this description because I, I still don't completely understand it. But epoxy is a resin uh, made of a resin component and a hardener component. It, essentially what you said, Ty, it's, it's a liquid form plastic that <laughs> goes through an exothermic reaction to then give you an epoxy, which is just a, a hardened plastic component. Mm. Wow, and, so it turns out I am pretty smart. Look at that. <laughs> Spot on. And uh, as far as what you asked, Brian, the the one to one, two to one, three to one, there are even I think there might even be four to one. That's just the mixed ratio of the the resin to hardener. And that basically has a play in the cure time, the viscosity, and the application. So some one to one epoxies are three to five minutes. I think Total Boat has a three or four minute epoxy. Uh, and those mm-hmm. sometimes are used for just bonding applications, mm-hmm. metal to wood bonding, um, like I did with the brass veneer. And then one-to-ones are usually your tabletops, uh, two-to-ones and three-to-ones and even four-to-ones are usually your slower curing, uh, lower viscosity, deep pour products that can go one and a half to some say four inches deep. Not, not you know, six inches like the one I poured. <laughs> Nope, that got you a runaway exotherm, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, for the for the listeners, I poured epoxy six inches thick and torched the heck out of it, which we're going to talk about bubbles later. And uh, <laughs> I cured a gallon and a half of epoxy in about 15 minutes. So <laughs> surprised I didn't set it on fire. Should have taken four days to cure. Um, did did you have the the temp gun, the inf- infrared temperature gun, to get a, a temperature reading on that? Because I bet it, I bet it was damn near two hundred degrees. <laughs> I don't know. It was kind of steaming though. I should have taken it out of the house. I, I'm not kidding. I torched it. I jumped into the shower. I came out of the shower, and it was hard. <laughs> I was like, oh no. <laughs> Um, I had an experience like that, actually. Uh, one of my very first... I, I've had really good luck with epoxy and the limited experience I have with it. But there was one time where I poured a one-to-one tabletop epoxy. Probably, I think I did like three-eighths of an inch thick of a pour, which is probably too much. And it cured unbelievable. Well, on top of being in Phoenix, Arizona, working in an open garage in 110 degree heat, which is very not a good idea for epoxy. <laughs> Um, it did a similar thing where it cured up and like mine was more like 20 minutes, but similar thing where it just hardened super fast and turned out awful. Yeah. It's, it's so brutal when that happens because it suspends all those bubbles from the mixing process right in it. So it's cool. You're like, Oh sweet. I have a hardened product. It sped it up. But then you look at it and you're like, this is terrible. Yeah, for sure. Not even salvageable the majority of the time. And, yeah, because I think I thought it turned out good, and then I sent it through the planer, and it revealed all the uh, bubbles that were inside that I couldn't quite mm-hmm. see from the surface, and it was toast. So just to um, backtrack a little bit, you said one-to-one, that's like your tabletop epoxies, which is up to a quarter-inch thick you pour at a time or so yeah yeah i think i think it's rated about a quarter it's it's interesting ty said three eights and i've i've pushed three eights and that's like about where i'm comfortable i i won't go over three eights i've heard of people doing almost half an inch which that's gonna go runaway exotherm it's it's too much (laughs) heat generation but yeah a one-to-one i think they're usually rated for a quarter inch maximum so you know your flood coats and tabletops and such and that cures overnight 24 hours 24 hour rock hard. Yep. Okay. Um, but I know people are going to ask later on about it, the swirl time, gel time and stuff, but just to, to hit the like gel time on that, I 
think it's only a couple hours, maybe three or four hours. Nice. And then two to one is like three to four days for two to one epoxy. Seventy two hour. Yeah, seventy two hours, so three day full cure uh, for most of them. And, and that's assuming you're at about 67 to 75 degrees room temperature. Okay. And th- that will hit the gel phase. In my experience, anywhere from 12 to 18 hours regularly, if your room is too cold, I've had it push even to about 24 hours. Yeah, I, th- I think I poured one that I had asked you questions about, and I think it was four days later, and it was still soft. Cause I had left it in the garage, which gets down to 50 degrees, 45 degrees at night. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Again, and we'll it's talk about because, environment. Yeah. Some people don't prefer that. They're like, Oh, I don't want to wait the extra time for it to cure. But me personally, more time curing is more time to eliminate any sort of bubbles or problems that may be happy. It's more time to penetrate into the wood. So I'd, I'd prefer a slower cure. And then we also, so we talked one-to-one, two-to-one. Three to one, four to one. We're just going to focus on one to one and two to one because that's the most common for like swirl times and stuff moving forward. Because if you're using those other three and four to ones, you you probably know what you're doing. You probably <laughs> have an idea of, of how to use epoxy. Um, but so one of the uh, couple questions that I had because I don't really do epoxy often, and I will I, I cut corners as quickly as much as possible to make the process cheaper because it's an expensive product to work with. Um, but what do you what do you mix in? What do you mix with? And then uh, what do you, yeah, let's just start there. Cause I buy like the cheapest buckets on a big pour. I'll use a five gallon bucket from home Depot and use the concrete metal like mixer with my drill <laughs> bit to mix it. Um, because mm-hmm. I just reuse that every single time, but I'd like to get your, your perspective. So it, Ultimately, yeah, we, we all probably use the same sort of stuff, you know, popsicle sticks, uh, drill mixers, five gallon buckets, and then the, the small plastic buckets that are, what is it, two quarts and four quarts or whatever that you can get at box stores. And so for me, if it's a smaller pour, if I'm pouring like a, a serving tray, uh, charcuterie board or clock or something kind of smaller that's half gallon or so, um, I use the, the two quart to four quart buckets and i actually use just a, a popsicle stick these large popsicle sticks because i found that the drills just generate so much so many air bubbles and granted a, a deep pour product will put them off because of the slow cure time but i i like the hand mixing for smaller stuff and then the the big ones like you said the paddle mixers and such just drill and go at it because I'm, I'm not going to sit there and hand mix for 15 minutes yeah i don't have that kind of muscle stamina (laughs) (laughs) me either i'm a little guy i usually take the the plastic spoon in my 12 volt drill i chuck it in there and i just mix it with the the spoon i think i've actually done that every single time i've ever worked with epoxy is chucked up a plastic spoon into my drill and spun it around i pour epoxy in the fractal burns and those are maybe eight ounces at a time so it's really easy to to mix small quantities but yeah anything for a charcuterie board 10 by 18 and you're in like the the quartz two quart mixers I don't know. Nobody got time for that. <laughs> I, I, I still do that by hand, man. I, I don't know. I, I, because I feel that the mixers, it's really hard to scrape the edges and I want to mm-hmm. ensure it's very well mixed. So I use these, these large popsicle sticks, I don't know, eight inches or so, and I'll get a good scrape around the buckets and, and anything under a gallon I'm, I'm hand mixing usually. Hmm. Look at that. I learned something today. 
I've always dreamt of doing a really big like table pour and getting the like. Have you ever seen uh what is it Black Forest Epoxy Company or something like, like that? You ever seen those forty guys? gallon drums of epoxy? Go, yeah. yeah, dude, I've always wanted to have like a full five gallon drum that I get a freaking stir up with a big drill spinner thingy and then getting to pour it into a giant mold. That would be super sick. Yeah, th- those videos are they're so cool, but like. For me, that'd be terrifying because even when I'm doing a two or three gallon pour, a table pour, I always take my five gallon bucket and I dump like maybe 20 or 30 ounces and I let it spread a lot around the mold. And I'm like, okay, none, <laughs> none leak, none leak. And then I'll pour the rest of the bucket. So I can only imagine if you have, you know, 40 gallons of epoxy lined up to pour and you could spring a little leak. Oh, I'm so stressed. <laughs> and it, it's these hard d- these the... dudes got it down to a science though. Yeah. I mean, with the well, really viscous. Low, low viscosity the really watery mm-hmm. ones um mm-hmm. i mean if they find a leak it's so hard to stop it it's almost oh, impossible yeah. to stop it it's just it's like pouring water through a through holes so <laughs> oh man it's the worst uh but yeah you- i don't mean to toot my own horn on that but i still to this day knock on wood have never had a leak out of a mold i've only <laughs> ever had leaks out of tape like taping voids on the underside I've oh, had yeah. those blow out and lost yep. a quarter of a gallon, but never a mold. Cynical, I've done that maybe. as well. I go, I go pretty over the top with, with mold building, which is actually the next question. Uh, what do you, mm-hmm. you know, what do you make your, cause you, once you mix your epoxy, what are you, what are you pouring it into? Um, but I've, I've never had one leak like that. So I, I don't know. What, what do you make molds out of your molds out of? Mm-hmm. I, I'm assuming we make them very similar if we're, we're not having that issue. And so, <laughs> It, for that, to really avoid the leaking, it comes down to, in my opinion, using a lot of silicone. Um, and so my mold construction is usually, you know, you've got the, the options of melamine or MDF and tape. And I actually even tape over my melamine. I don't like the idea of mold release because I've seen too many people use mold release, miss the tiniest spot on their melamine, and then have that melamine completely adhered to their project. And they're sitting (laughs) chiseling away. And it's like, dude, the amount of wasted time and effort to chisel that mold off, like spend 20 minutes taping up the mold and you can reuse it over and over. So Mm -hmm. I'm a... I prefer MDF because I've cut my hands too many times on melamine. Oof. Yeah, brutal. So um, MDF, Tyvek tape, tuck tape, even packing tapes, just some sort of tape to put over the surface so you're not sticking. Um, and then I just pre-drill with Craig screws and silicone all on the inside. The advanced formula 30-minute silicone. It's like 750 uh, tube, but so many people think caulk is sufficient and if there's anything to take from mold building don't use caulk it's <laughs> awful it hmm. will flake off into your pore it takes like a full day to cure sometimes it'll get like it'll cure up into your epoxy so you'll lose some dimension you'll lose some length or width so i i do not recommend caulk hmm. huh so have you ever had any experience with uh, like reusable like forms like the hdpe ones and stuff so I have two HDPE reusable molds uh, from two different companies. One's a 24 by 12 and the other I think is an 18 and a half by eight and a half or so. And I use them, but not super often. The The 24 by 12, I use a lot for larger serving trays. I'll put um, a taped block of melamine to take the width down to 10 inches and I'll pour 10 by 24 serving trays. But gotcha. I, I usually make my own molds because I like the the modularity and the ability to 
change the dimensions because, you know, I get pieces of wood that aren't going to fit in a 24 by 12, but they can make perfectly good pieces. Right. Yeah. So, so it's safe. So you prefer making your own like nine times out of 10? Yeah, I would say nine and a half times out of 10, I make my own. That makes sense to me. And I feel like, uh, I have a reusable form as well and I've only used it one time, but every other time. So I've done like, I don't know, probably like six epoxy projects and they were all, well, I mean, I've used epoxy to like fill knots and stuff, but when I say projects, I'm thinking like charcuterie boards mm-hmm. and stuff that I've actually made a product out of it. And uh, they've all been, uh, I've done one with a reusable form and the rest were all that I handmade with melamine and Tyvek tape. And I liked it a lot. So I have that reusable one. I don't know where I got it from. Uh, like Jeff Max Supply, I think. I don't know who he sells. Um, there's like this concave bottom. So it's like really slight, like rounded bottom. So it takes forever to drum sand the bottom because you have to get through the, all of the epoxy. I don't know if it's just poor design or if that's the way they intend to make them. Um, you'll say that doesn't sound intentional. Uh, Charlie has one too. Same issue. Um, you can see it when you come in a couple weeks, Ty. Um, but super frustrating. I love using melamine for that flat bottom. Uh, it makes it so much yeah. easier. But it is convenient. All I do is like crack the sides, you know, give it the old like CPR one punch, one pump, and it just pops <laughs> out the bottom and it's done. So like, the, the, conveni- <laughs> the convenience factor is awesome. But I I don't know. It is frustrating a little bit with that stuff. Well, that yeah, just they- like to me sounds like pretty worthless, to be honest. Well, not okay, not worthless, but like I wouldn't use it for that purpose. Like that would annoy me too bad to you're because you're using more epoxy and it's creating more work in the back end, which is just a a a profit killer, I guess, which is a product killer in my shop. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the the concavity of the the bottom. Oh, concavity! That was a big word. <laughs> concavity. Uh, concavity. I, I, did you not hear it when I said it earlier? No, you did you say concavity? I don't I think I think you said bottom. concave. It's yeah, just, concave. It's the same word. Zach said concavity. Con- <laughs> concavity. <laughs> Zach, oh, man, you're really architecting your own words over here. <laughs> anyway, the the concave bottom I haven't heard of, but uh, one of the suppliers that makes the HDPE no seal molds, I've heard their walls are tapered at five degrees. Yep, that's one and I have. So, Oh, yeah. I've heard that's brutal because you get epoxy. Like you waste another 10 or 15% of epoxy all the way around your board. So the, there's that. I, I silicone the edges on the last pour and I had no leaks. Um, so that was good. It, it is frustrating though. It, I talked, I was going to try to cut my my wood at five degrees on both ends uh, to fit it in there perfectly. Um but to me, it's like, I'm getting a reusable mold. I shouldn't have to do this. No. Right. Yeah. You're, you're paying for convenience. Over a hundred dollars on a mold, and I shouldn't. I shouldn't have to to doctor the way I'm like you know using it to make it effective. So, a little frustrated, but again, I'm able to make cool stuff with it. So, you know, and I don't have to buy melamine. Yeah. It's it's interesting because so many of the beginner epoxy folks see people use reusables and they're like, oh, I need to get those. I need to go all in and buy this $200 mold and this $100 mold. And ultimately, go buy yourself a $50 four by eight sheet of MDF, a $15 roll of sheathing tape, a $5 thing of Craig screws, and you'll be pouring 
for two to three months and you can reuse that stuff over and over yeah more oh because slightly inconvenient but more profitable that's right because you, you peel the tape off the the melamine and you can retape it and use it again you might have to cut mm-hmm. new walls if your screws strip out or if the the holes are too broken but you can use that same sheet of melamine over and over and over again especially if you're doing similar sizes my bases, I'll get probably five, six uses. The walls, like you said, eventually those wall holes, I get probably two to four uses out of my walls. Okay. But nice. even that, imagine a, a quarter sheet of MDF being used for four coffee tables. That means I'm getting 16 coffee tables out of a sheet of MDF. <laughs> that's pretty profitable. Yeah, that's, I, I I think that makes a lot more sense than buying one of those reusable molds mm-hmm. i think they're, they're like you said it's kind of like they're almost gimmicky exactly like you said people f- who are new to epoxy are like oh i need to hit the ground running i'm gonna buy this perfect mold it's gonna be so great and this this and that but like you said like they have flaws as well that yeah. can be remedied with a diy situation mm-hmm. and the videos on the mold i have don't show that when they pop it out of the mold <laughs> it looks perfect so um, i had a discussion with with charlie about it it's kind of like well what are we doing something wrong or are we just getting inferior product bamboozled yeah i got totally bamboozled so we've talked about building a form we've talked about mixing epoxy we've talked about different types of epoxy now i think we get into a little more detailed conversation i guess and i would love to hear and apparently a listener would love to hear as well about your swirl window for like powder pigments for example I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. I've had struggles with it for sure. And I've also had times where I somehow executed a ridiculously perfect swirl. And I, I don't, I don't know like what the window is and whatnot. I'm sure it's different for different epoxy products, but I'm sure you have it down to a science at this point. So let's hear something and, about that. And with that, with the whole uh, swirling process, talk about like the environment you pour in. Uh, so we, we mm-hmm. mix it, we, we build a form. Where do you pour temperature, fan, airflow, all that good stuff too? Yep. And so this is a perfect question because if there's any question that I get more than others, it's it's this one. I get this question all the time. How did you swirl that like that? When do you swirl? Um, how did you do that, etc. And so the three epoxies that I use the most, uh, or now I use the most because Super Clear and a couple other companies just came out with a 24 hour deep pour product. It has a little bit less capacity or, or capability, I mean, than their true deep pour product. So super clears, and I'm saying super clear because that's the product I use most often. Um, they're one-to-one and I pour inside a room in the house. So it's a pretty stable 70, 71 degrees. It's, it's you know, pretty solid conditions for an epoxy pour. A one-to-one full cure 24 hours but to be honest after 18 hours you're you're touching it and it's hard as far as gel and swirl on a a one-to-one i think it's generally in the three or four hour period um i'll pour it and then once i hit about two hours or maybe even an hour and a half i'll come in the room i'll give it a little bit of a swirl and watch it and then and then keep coming in every 20 minutes for a one-to-one because i know that it's it's going to be curing up a lot quicker the 24 hour product i just did some pours last week with it and that product is is pretty cool i've only poured it three times now but it's it's unique in that it cures in 24 hours full cure yet you can pour it up to an inch deep if wow. yeah 
it's it's really cool if the volume is under 72 ounces so you oh, got a little okay. a little bit over half a gallon pour which so many most numbers. serving trays clocks charcuterie boards most people aren't ever pouring over half a gallon and so that that gel that like eight seven or eight hours so that that was really convenient for me because i usually have to pour at 3 a.m with the expectation that i come home the next day at 5 p.m and i can swirl it this was awesome because i can pour when i get home and by the time i go to bed it, it might be set with the swirls every so time you go to bed that, at 3 a.m exactly <laughs> so yeah a little caveat so, to all the listeners zach doesn't sleep so that also helps <laughs> i'll pour epoxy i wake up the next day it's hard i'm like well i guess i missed the swirl window <laughs> like i slept through <laughs> So if memory serves, I know that, I mean, so through the stages of an epoxy, whether it's two to one or one to one, they kind of go through the similar stages, but I, I kind of in a roundabout way you answered this, but I think that when they really stick is when you go to like drag like a popsicle stick, for example, and it's really like catching your popsicle stick almost like you're kind of fighting through it. Like it's not going to break your popsicle stick, but it definitely like fights you. Is that right? Um, yeah. Yes and no. So I am when I walk into the room and I come through it. And so this is another thing that I want to point out real quick, because I see a lot of people doing this incorrectly, is that when they go to swirl, they will put their stick all the way to the base of their mold. And you are 100% introducing microbubbles. What idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Dweebs, who does that? Not me. And so I skim. My, My thing is I skim the top eighth, because after you surface that, you're not going to lose a quarter inch ideally. So all you need is those swirls in that top eighth or quarter inch. So I will take a, a skewer, like a meat skewer, one of these 16th inch wide or whatever, and I'll just skim about an eighth inch down in. And if I'm getting kind of a, a honey-like consistency, I'll know within the next two hours I'm going to be set up. Gotcha. Cool. I, I just I wanted that clarification for like people who don't go based off time, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know if each epoxy could be different or whatever. But, well, uh, they're very temperature cool. dependent. Yeah, it's, sure. it's it, I say time, but I also tell people it's time at 70 degrees. I've had a shallow pour cure, like I was saying earlier, 24 hours later. Like that's where I got the gel time, 20, 24 hours, which usually I'm in the 16 hour window. And that's because I had the window open because I also had a table going and I wanted to slow that cure down. And so it, it was 60 degrees in the room. Gotcha. And then so during, obviously, you know, you want to make sure you hit that swirl window. And then for bubbles that are apparent in your pour, how do you handle that? Yes, Zach. How do you how do you handle that? <laughs> with a deep pour product, you shouldn't get any. the The product is designed with the slow cure time to mitigate that. Any bubbles that are there from mixing should come out. However, as I just said, if you're swirling too deep, you're going to introduce bubbles. Or if you like myself, recently have wood that was a little wetter than you expected, um, <laughs> that that epoxy is penetrating into that wood. And if that pore space has air in it, it's pushing that air back into the epoxy. And and if that air is, if it's dry enough or porous enough, or unfortunately wet enough, when that epoxy is penetrating and it's pushing that air or some of the water back into the epoxy through the curing process, 
that's going to introduce bubbles. And if it's too wet, it's going to happen the whole time. And Mm so I poured something recently that was a little bit wetter than my meter was reading, unfortunately. And it's pretty littered with micro bubbles. And I did everything Mm -hmm. right. Uh, I, I'm not a a rookie to pouring something of that capacity. (laughs) So it's, you know, you've got to be really diligent because even when you think you did it all right, something like moisture may get you or something like the wood being a little bit more porous. So is that when, uh, for like live edge pours, uh, people seal the edge with like tabletop epoxy, they wait for that to tack. So maybe four hours and then they do their regular deep pour inside to, and is that Mm -hmm. to prevent the bubbles from coming out or to get that process over with before they do the real pour? Is yeah, that- it's it's basic it's basically to penetrate those pores and replace that air space with epoxy so that through the curing of the deep pour, it's not happening and pushing those bubbles back out. And so some people will use a, a one-to-one, like you said, and seal their edges. I'm a little bit nervous of that because them being two different chemicals technically. So I've never done that. But what I'll do is I'll take a deep pour, I'll mix up a couple ounces. I'll put it on my live edges for something like a translucent pour where I'm actually worried about micro showing. And then about anywhere from six to 24 hours later, I'll do the actual pour. And I assume that in that time period, I've penetrated those voids and, and filled that, those, (laughs) that airspace enough (laughs) to, uh, to mitigate any sort of micro potential. Dang, dude, this is like, feels like classes in session for sure, dude. It's impressive how much you know about this stuff, to be honest with you. Real quick summary, because every time I pour epoxy, I text Zach the same questions. So tabletop epoxy, your squirrel time is like four-ish windows at room temperature. Four-ish hours at room temperature. <laughs> I think you two to four. You must have four two windows four. open. So I think it's two to four. So yeah. tabletop epoxy, two to four hours at room temperature. And then tabletop mm-hmm. or uh, deep pour is like 18. 12 to 18-ish. Okay. 12 to 18. Okay, cool. Yeah. I, I usually try to get, so I'll, most of my deep pours, I will try to have poured at 3 a.m. So that when I come home the next day at 5 right. p.m., I'm right about good. And what is that? That's uh, 14 hours. And I usually am, am pretty close to okay. it starting to gel up. Because I, I don't really have, again, other than going off of your suggestions when I mix, I just kind of, I'll, I'll swirl it. And then if it's like tacky enough, I'll just kind of be like, oh, I'm good. Like, I don't have a science behind it. I just kind of wing it every time. I think that's what's going to differ a very talented epoxy artist. No offense, doggy, to like us who kind of just does it like whenever we feel like it, you know? We are not the same. Yeah. (laughs) You're definitely on another level, Zach. I appreciate that. But what you just said brings up another point that we didn't necessarily hit. And that's that a lot of people think... So we're saying, you know, this 12 to 18 hour window, a lot of people think you come in, okay, it's a good consistency. You put your swirls in, you walk away, you never come back. And if you do that, they're not going to stay. You're always going to get a little bit of dissipation because that curing isn't happening, happening homogeneously in your widest and deepest parts. Well, they should all be the same depth, but in your widest parts, you're generating the most heat. And in the middle, you've got epoxy. So heat on both sides, whereas, (coughs) sorry. 
at the very ends of your pores at your mold walls, you don't have that heat being generated on the outside of it. Therefore, those ends are your last spot that are ever going to cure. So if you have, if you've ever watched one of your um, epoxy pores start to set up, if you'll lose your swirls at those ends and that's because it's the coldest, slowest curing spot. So you don't, you don't do it once, set your swirls and forget it. You got to come back and you got to swirl those again. So I babysit once it turns to that honey consistency, I'll babysit it for another three to four hours where I'll check on it every 30 minutes or so and lightly put in some swirls and torch whatever sort of micros I might've put in there. Hmm. That's pretty cool. So going to the next, like, I guess process in the or the next step in the process rather when it comes to popping it out of the mold I know you said you primarily like to use your own DIY molds which I'm sure sometimes isn't the easiest to pop out but after you pop it out what's your process for flattening and surfacing it at the end so let's just uh, assume the questions about the smaller product, like a serving tray. Cause I, I assume that's what most people do. Sure. Um, I've seen people flatten them with the mold base on, which I think is good in, in thought maybe, but I've tried that before. And when the epoxy is curing, it's shrinking. And when it's adhered to the wall, I mean, the edges of the the wood, it's it's actually kind of folding it up a little bit at times. So you're usually not getting a flat piece of wood out of a mold. Okay. Have you guys, have you ever experienced that where you pull a piece out of a mold and it's not completely flat? Yeah, for sure. Yes, but because I probably put it in not flat, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So even if you pop it out and it's not perfectly flat on the bottom, you said some people leave it in the mold. Some people, I've always taken it out personally. I know you have the CNC now and I know you, I'm sure you have, you have a little homemade router sled to flatten things, right? Yep. And I have a drum sander, which is what I actually use. So I, I don't leave the bottom on. I've seen people do it, but most of the time you're not going to get a perfectly flat piece out of a mold and therefore it's not flat in the mold either. And so I always take it out, take it to the cast iron of the table saw, rock it a little bit, see what I'm working with, whether it's twisted, bowed, cupped, whatever. And I'll put it on a, a what's that called? A planer sled, you okay. know, where you shim the corners. And I run that through the drum sander, a whip shimmed up whatever way it needs to be. And I'll do the top, then the bottom, and then I'll run the bottom that's flat on the the actual drum sander bed back through to get it completely flat and that's usually my process for tables like you said homemade router sled for sure do you think that you'll uh, be flexing the usage of the cnc soon for that kind of project or you kind of sticking with what you got absolutely you know a homemade router sled there's always small errors in them they're (laughs) they're they're handmade they're they're not the accuracy of a cnc and so right <clears throat> the flattening done with a cnc is is going to basically be seamless i i imagine mm-hmm. I, I won't have the such bad seams from the router passes and i won't have as much potential tear out because i can control the speed a little bit better so the, sure. the cnc i'll be using for flattening anything that's 48 or shorter and you can do other yeah, things so while it's flattening you don't have to you press play and you can go huge. do other things mm-hmm so I did on those uh, uh, tables I did for that, the 10 cocktail tables I did for that event company, they were 24 inches round, but they originally started as 24 by 24 inch square panels. 
and I did I was cleaning up like three tops in one set of clamps, so just like for efficiency sakes. And I wasn't able to dog it. I know you're going to hate on me because I didn't use dominoes, but uh, there was a few of them that were a little, had a, a little unevenness, you know, maybe just a, they slid with the glue or whatever it may be. And I didn't notice it in clamps as well as I also needed to bring the thickness of the tables down like a little over a half inch. So obviously CNC was the only option. And then uh, it, it flattened so well that thing earned its keep. I ran it for like six hours straight flattening all 10 of these tabletops and it was amazing. Hmm. Would have been nice with dominoes, though. Might have only been three hours. <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't even need to mention that there was some slight variation in the boards because I did have to take off a half of an inch, and I didn't even want to do that on the planer. It would have taken too long. So CNC flattening made the most sense, I think. I don't know. What would have been best? The planer – so with the planer, it would have been so many passes to get down to a half – well, I could have been pretty aggressive with it, but the amount of boards I had would have been a headache. And like Doggy said, I was able to do other things while it was flattening yeah, for me. That's that's a good a good point. So you flatten it and you get some like ridges, right? And some little imperfections that you have to sand out. So that kind of goes into the next question about like I know you did a story about it, but like what's your sanding process? What do you start at? What do you end at? Uh talk about wet sanding, all that mm-hmm. good stuff. Um, you know, as, as detailed as, as you'd like to be, again, if people ask you these questions in DMS, you can just say, Hey, listen to this episode, you know, <laughs> minutes 30 to, to 45 and you don't have to answer these questions anymore. Um, so yeah, as detailed yeah, as yeah. you want to be. Yeah. It's going to be valuable to be able to reference this because this is my second most frequently asked question. And so it depends on the project in the aesthetic you're going for. So serving tray, uh, food grade items, etc. I personally prefer sanding all the way to 600, even the wood. Some people argue that when you sand that high, you won't get penetration of the oil into the medium, the wood. Yeah, maybe so with a hard wax oil, but I've never seen any problems applying mineral oil and beeswax to a, a cutting board or a serving tray when sanding to 600. So when I do food grade items, I I sand both the epoxy and the wood to 600. If I'm using a finish like Rubio Monaco, where it's advised not to sand over 150 or 180, I will sand 100 to get the mill marks out, 120, 180, 240, water pop, and then I'll sand back with 180. I don't really know why I do the 240. Deep down, it feels like it's going to give a little bit of a better look to the epoxy, even though I'm I'm coming right back over. I mean, the wood, even though I'm coming right back over it with 180. But with a Rubio Monaco product that has epoxy, I will sand after that water pop. I'll sand just the epoxy itself, 240, 320, 400, 600. Okay. Because otherwise, I think that to me personally, the aesthetic of 180 or 240 sandpaper on epoxy is, is just really hazy and scratchy looking. So I, I do tend to, for those products, sand to 600. And that's, and that's for a hazy look. If you want a glossier look, which I don't prefer usually, but I have had customers ask about it. Um, you can wet sand, so you can dry sand your 600, 800, 1000, and then there are there are Abrilon or there's other brands as well, but the 
the wet sanding pads where you can go a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand. Mm-hmm. They may even draw it all the way up to like eight or so. But all I do is four thousand, and it basically eliminates all scratches, but it doesn't eliminate every scratch. And I tell people all the time, you know, you're taking abrasive to plastic. You're not ever going to get rid of every single scratch. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you're still using an abrasive. The only way you're going to get a scratchless surface is if you polish, you cut and polish because you're filling that material back in essentially. Mm-hmm. Otherwise there's going to be a degree of micro scratch mm-hmm. you see. So it's what are you comfortable with putting out as a scratched product? And so me personally, 600. I know people that just sand their epoxy to 240. Hmm. So, and I, you mentioned uh, polishing. You don't have to dive too deep in that, but I did see a question and someone I think made, uh, they casted something in epoxy and they're not necessarily a serious maker or anything. They thought it would be a much easier project than it turned out to be. And they had a question about polishing. If you want to say something about that real quick about what your process looks like i wish i could answer that honestly but i don't polish because i don't prefer the aesthetic if i was to do something that was casted or perfectly clear i would uh when i want that glassy look i'll just do a flood coat over it but from people Mm -hmm. that i talk to they'll go through the dry grits all the way up to a thousand then they'll hit the wet grits thousand two thousand three thousand four thousand and then they take out something like the mcguire's compound and then they'll do the the cutting and polishing and I, I've never done it personally, so I don't know how to, but gotcha. that's the process from what I understand. Hmm. Well, that's uh, good to know. Hmm. I've done what? Two flood coats? Uh, no. Yeah. Two flood coats, both with the help of Zach. And I will never do a flood coat again. That's such a pain. <laughs> well, I, I did a flood coat on those uh, wine cork charcuterie boards. And I was like, sweet flood coats done. And Zach was like, oh, you know. Tomorrow when it dries, you should start sanding at this grit and do it again. I was like, I have to do this again? I thought it was just one and done. Uh, so I actually have a genuine question about a flood coat. I've never done one before. I've never like looked into doing one or research or even watched a YouTube video about it. When you do it, do you do, you do both sides? I don't understand. I, I genuinely don't get it. Because if you do it on just the top, there's going to be little drip marks on we the gotta bottom. We got to sand those, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Third most frequently asked question. So I'm glad we got to it. <laughs> A flood coat is the last little bit of it. You always need to do a seal coat. You need to do one to two seal coats because you want to penetrate that wood enough to where it's not creating bubbles up on the surface, um, especially with something like maple burl where it's a little bit more porous. You, It's going to be littered with micro bubbles at the surface, even if you pour it the eighth inch thick. So I always do a seal coat first where I'll I'll basically just take a rag and I'll just rub it epoxy on it as if it's polyurethane Hmm. and I'll do it on the bottom too. Because if I seal just the top and the bottom's not sealed, you've got a a moisture gradient difference and that board's likely to warp. Hmm. So I'll do that the first night, the next day I'll come back and hit it lightly with 180 or 240. And then I'll do another seal coat a little bit heavier where I'll use like a, a Rubio plastic spreader and just do that. And the drips on the bottom, I'll leave them. The third day, I'll come back and do my first flood. I'll sand it with 180 <laughs> and then do the eighth inch flood. Again, drips are going to get on it, whatever. If that one's good, I'll call it. If not, sand it back a little bit again with 180 and then another eighth inch flood. Hopefully within two seals and two floods, it's okay. But then that you sand the drips intense. off. Then you sand oh, the yeah, flood off. coats. Yeah, the, the flood coats aren't for everyone, man. There, A lot of people ask me and they're like, dude, my first one didn't come out good. And I'm like, because it's not one and done. It's <laughs> it's a process. 
I definitely thought it was one and done just based off my perception of it. But then it kind of goes to the point that you made about scratches. Think then you have a surface that's easily scratched. Like if you flood coated a, a table, it's not it's not uh, bulletproof. Like if you put a glass down or a, a plate or a, a fork or you know a kid's playing with a knife at the table and you're scratched, like that doesn't eliminate. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. It doesn't it doesn't make it impenetrable. Um, no, no, it's it's a finish, but it's not an indestructible finish. Yeah, thank it, you for making if that you easier. T- if you take a, <laughs> you're welcome. If you take a coarse enough towel, literally a hand towel, and rub it across a flood coat, you're gonna get scratches that aren't coming out. Mm-hmm. I've I've done it. I went to wipe some stuff off a, a flood coated board, and I was like, holy crap, I just ruined it. And then I had to do another flood. <laughs> And I have had one flood coated table ever. And I tried to talk the guy out of it. I was like, look, listen, it's going to be a little bit more plasticky. It's, it's not going to be that durable. There's this perspective that because it's epoxy, it's harder, it's a better finish. It's, as you said, it's not indestructible. You will scratch the hell out of it and have to re-sand it or re-polish it at some point. It, it will need maintenance just like a hard wax oil finish will need maintenance. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And I think that kind of wraps up all the questions that we had uh, brought in. We got a handful of duplicates, obviously. So that wraps them all up. And I think it's time that we jump into the Maker Spotlight, Doggy. Would you like to announce that? Yeah, this is exciting. These are uh, two... Uh, good friends of mine, so Justin and Olga from Little Pine Woodshop Workshop Workshop on Instagram, and they are in Fort Worth, Texas, and they just bought a sawmill, like a portable mobile sawmill. Uh, I, I forget the name of the the brand, but and they're just they're going hard with with the business right now. They're they're totally revamping the way it's going to look, how they're going to operate, um, and they're going to start slabbing up logs like crazy. So. I wanted to shout them out again. Great friends of mine. They love my bolo tie. So naturally I love them. <laughs> and I uh, just wanted to give them a quick. Someone's got to do it. Exactly. And they love the uh, Canadian tuxedo. So can't really complain with that. You'll probably be seeing some content over on our uh, Maker Made podcast Instagram that revolves around them. So make sure you check them out as well as check us out at the Maker Made podcast on Instagram. And I think that pretty much wraps us up, boys. Is there anything else you wanted to mention or chat about? No, I wanted to, to do two quick thank yous. One goes out to Grabo Tools, uh, Grabo.tools on Instagram for sponsoring episode 14. And a second one for you, Zach. Uh, I don't think I've ever gotten this much clear, concise information on epoxy and in-depth uh, epoxy on, epoxy information um, ever. So I really appreciate you coming on and just blowing us up with knowledge. Uh, it is <laughs> really awesome and i'll probably be re-listening to this episode whenever i pour epoxy (laughs) to get some some information since my brain has limited capacity zach whenever doggy messages you a question about epoxy just be like hey refer to back to the maker made podcast episode 14 okay (laughs) minute 25 35 seconds in (laughs) no it's it's been really cool and i appreciate the opportunity for you guys to to have me here and i'm sure we were not as linear as expected with answering the questions, but there's, <laughs> there's still a lot of knowledge there. And ultimately, you know, I, people can contact me um, directly to, to ask these questions still, because there's, there's intricacies that are, you know, situational um, or circumstantial, mm-hmm. like not every wood is the same, not every epoxy brand is the same. So there's, there's different things to consider with this stuff. It's, it's not, everything we said is definitive. This isn't written in stone as the answer, but this, this is, you know, a lot of trials and tribulations have kind of showed us that 
this is how it's worked for us essentially. Speaking of having people contact you, do you want to go ahead and plug your uh, socials and the projects you're working on? Uh, sure. At double K underscore products on Instagram, um, on TikTok, I think it is at double K products without the underscore. And those are the two <laughs> I'm most heavily using and active on um, Instagram more so than most. And the products just uh, tune in and find out there's there's a lot going on on my page I'm, I'm working on so many different things from ocean pieces to clocks to tables to you know for sure zach he's a very good follow on the gram so definitely please go check him out and like i said check us out on the podcast instagram we're constantly taking questions that you guys may have not just epoxy related obviously um any woodworking running a business questions you may have feel free to let us know we'd love to get them up on the show we actually just started accepting voice questions you can send you can record a voice memo on your phone and send them into our email which is makermadepodcast at gmail.com send us over whatever you guys got we'd love to get you featured upon the show once again thanks so much to grabo for sponsoring today's episode as well as zach for jumping on and i think on that note we peace out boys peace 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 yep